Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com and the Boyd International Aviation Forecast Summit this October in Cincinnati. Visit AirlinesConfidential.com to attend at a reduced rate. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. He's not going to talk about airport codes today. I promise. Right, Ben? I promise to. Deal, yeah. (laughs) Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. It was fun, though, last week. It was fun. It was. So what do you think um, aviation, chain smokers, Gunster, MD, and Philadelphia all have in common? Well, they're all related to Seth Kaplan, but not our Seth Kaplan, NPR's here and now transportation analyst. Okay, you'll have to explain that to me sometime, Ben. Well, pushing (laughs) back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Really, I mean that. Maybe you'll explain that to us later. (laughs) Today, uh, we're going to talk about something that shocked me until it didn't. And no shock why one woman is our passenger behaving badly this week. This is pretty bad. First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with the week's news. Ben, would you believe frequent flyer programs might be more profitable now than ever? I'm going to say it again. Frequent flyer programs might be more profitable now than ever. Yes, when I saw that statement in Airline Weekly this week, I thought either I misread it or they were wrong. But then I read the explanation and it actually made a lot of sense. This was all based on a big disclosure by Delta, which actually didn't really have anything to do with frequent flyer programs. What it was, they were trying to borrow a lot of money and they wanted to use their frequent flyer program as collateral for that because everybody knows that frequent flyer programs are kind of the most stable part of these airlines right now. I didn't know what exactly they would disclose, but you know, obviously the not the same challenges as, as the airline itself. And by the way, Delta ended up impressing the lending community so much that it borrowed more money than it expected to. It was looking for $6.5 billion, ended up borrowing $9 billion. That's how low the interest rates were that it got. And so it's going to avoid taking a loan from the federal government, just like Southwest avoided that. Those loans come with all kinds of strings, including that the government can convert some of that debt to equity, basically take a stake in the airline, which dilutes the shares of everybody else and so forth. A lot of the other airlines had no choice because they couldn't borrow in the same terms as Delta and Southwest, which just went into the crisis in better shape than other airlines. But back to SkyMiles, the frequent flyer program. This is fascinating. And this is something that these airlines have not typically disclosed. They've been very tight lip. They've played these cards close to their vest in terms of the uh, these programs and the finances of these programs. To the point, Ben, that back in 2007, I was at this uh, conference in Athens, I remember. It was an IATA conference in Athens. And Jeff Robertson, who was then the head of SkyMiles at Delta, gave this presentation that was unusually transparent about the pro- P&L <laughs> of, of SkyMiles. And 
we ran it in Airline Weekly. Of course, I was at Airline Weekly for many years. We ran it. And for years after that, I was like trying to extrapolate from that 2000 presentation, like after the merger with Northwest and all the rest of it, what SkyMiles finances might look like because they never again disclosed anything like that. But lately, we've seen these disclosures from a few airlines, including this one by Delta. And, and this is interesting. So SkyMiles generates about $6 billion in mileage sales a year. Uh, some of that's internal. I'll explain that. But uh, most of our listeners probably know this. For those who don't, the way these programs generate revenue is they sell miles and the simplest way to think of it is that when you spend money on a credit card, let's say, or when you stay at a hotel and you get frequent flyer miles for doing that, or when you, I don't know, rent a car or send flowers or eat at a restaurant, do anything where you get miles. What's really happening is that other company is buying those miles from the airline to then hand to you. Two cents at a time, it adds up you know, per mile, but it adds up to billions and billions of dollars for the industry. That's why these programs have gone from initially a cost center to sort of encourage loyalty. I mean, that's what Advantage was when American invented it back in 1981 to these profit centers that they are today. So anyway, SkyMiles sells about $6 billion in miles. About $2 billion of that is internal within Delta. Basically, they're just looking at it as if it's its own business. Uh, So when you get miles for flying Delta, the airline technically buys those miles from SkyMiles, even though it's all the same company, to give to you. That's like $4 billion. And then another $2 billion, especially from American Express. Those credit cards, Sky, Sky Mail, Miles credit cards, uh, from and, and other American Express products that allow people to to uh, to accumulate Sky Miles. American Express is buying those miles from Delta. So I, mean, I think six billion dollars. The cost to Sky Miles of providing all the free travel that it provides is something like four billion dollars. It's mostly free travel. You can do other things with the miles, but uh, but six billion in revenue, four billion in cost. Uh, that is a heck of a of a profit margin. Uh, help me out there. So if it's four billion revenue, six billion, it's a fifty percent margin. No, 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 a thirty-three percent margin. Right. I, this is why I shouldn't try to do this math live. Anyway, it's a higher profit margin than any airline in the world, even in a good year for the most part. Let alone this year. So, all very interesting, Ben. Does that surprise? I mean, again, in retrospect, I I I I, I get it. But if I had told you that that's that sky my oh, and that's right. So 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 the so 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 the reason why this is what I wanted to get to why it's even more profitable now because those are just kind of the run rate numbers. But why it's even more profitable now? Think of everything I just I just said to you, and can you guess? the explanation for why SkyMiles, why in the world it would be more profitable now, according to Delta, than it was last year when the airline earned, I don't know, what, $6 billion in net profits or something like that. And this year, this year is losing all kinds of money. Any guesses? Well, I, I can think of a couple reasons. One might be that uh, nobody's redeeeming the miles, right? Yeah, since, yeah since bingo. Nobody- yeah, bingo. Right, so, that that's that's the explanation. Yeah, and go, keep going. Yeah, but, no, but, and, I, that, and, but and also though, even smaller um, dollar transactions now, more of them are on credit cards as people are not wanting to use cash because of the perceived risk of transmitting viruses and things like that. So even even I find myself, you know, buying a three or four dollars at a store or something will use a credit card, whereas before I almost always would have paid cash for that amount. But I and the store plug in the credit card in. 
Right. And the store might be happy to accept it, whereas they weren't in the past. Generally, merchants don't like accepting credit cards for small dollar values because there are these fixed costs. And no matter how small the charge is, they have to pay something. And so it ends up being a bigger percentage of a smaller purchase. And so merchants hoped people would pay for ca- pay with cash rather for small purchases. But now, because people don't want to be exchanging physical money, because there's a coin shortage in the US for all kinds of reasons, I think it's what you said. Not to mention, there's been this shift toward online ordering. And, and almost by definition, online, yeah, I know you can pay with PayPal and things other than credit card. But uh, if you go into a store, you might pay with cash. If you're ordering something online, you're almost certainly going to pay with a credit card. And people are more ordering more things online, so that's all true. And it goes back to that first guess, Ben. Uh, you know, basically, people are still spending all this money on credit cards, and so these credit card partners are still buying all these money from airlines. But what are people not doing? They're not, tra- <laughs> they're, not they're not traveling. They're not basically redeeming the miles. And, and and the way these programs have always worked, and some of them have tried to kind of encourage people to redeem miles other ways, right? (laughs) Doing things other than traveling. But by and large, people have this dream of traveling. That's the point of the program. And people, the majority of of people accumulate miles doing things. Let me restate that. People accumulate the majority of miles doing things other than traveling, but they redeem the majority of miles traveling. I remember Aeroplan years ago when it was... independent program and get into that separate from air Canada did a pretty big disclosure and they made that clear that their members earn most of the miles doing all kinds of other things that had nothing to do with travel. But what they wanted those miles for was not for, uh, you know, a stereo system or uh, even a hotel room or something really to travel. They wanted to fly. They, they wanted that business class ticket to Europe uh, that they couldn't afford with cash. And, and so, so there you go. Uh, well, you now, know, Ben, so yeah, go ahead. In when when I ran frequent fire programs at big airlines or was part <laughs> of them, what we found is that the people who earned the miles not by flying wanted free trips. But the people who earned the most miles by flying didn't want free trips as much as they wanted upgrades yeah. into business class or and or free access to lounges in the airport. So they wanted to make the travel that that they had to do more comfortable rather than just travel more, which and is that makes, the yeah, that, miles on the card and then say, now I want to travel. Right, because if you're George Clooney in that movie, the last thing you want to do is fly more, right? <laughs> you're already <laughs> flying as much as, as much as you want, but you want to fly more comfortably so that, no, that, that, that makes perfect sense. Ben, as profitable as these programs are, right? When you look at those numbers, somebody might think, well, why not uh, spin off the program? Why, why not sell off SkyMiles if you're Delta? I think there's, a, there's an answer to that question, isn't there? Well, there, there's a couple answers to that question. One is, you know, you can do the accounting and you can say, yeah, it's a 50% margin because I can look in all these miles that I sell and I can look what it costs me to run this program. And even if I count that I've got to essentially pay Delta to redeem the awards, you know, some sort of equivalent ticket value because I give this award to a person with miles when you could have sold that ticket, even if they do that. 
But there's one big thing here which is missing, which is how valuable is Sky Miles if Delta doesn't exist? Is is that a a question to me? Yes. (laughs) It's it's worth like nothing, right? No, that's the point. So is Sky Miles really that profitable when they don't have to buy the airplanes, they don't have to pay the pilots, they don't have to negotiate with the unions, they don't have to pay landing fees, right? They don't have to do all the things that are required to make the miles they sell worth anything. So, So I get that you can say on the margin, I can, since I have the airline running anyway, this program is incrementally worth a lot of money to me. But I don't think you could say in absolute, which is why if you spin it off and all of a sudden the airline isn't as committed because it's you're now just a partner, maybe they'll get a better deal from Amex than Sky Miles once they sell Sky Miles, right? And you saw yeah. that up in Canada. You mentioned Aeroplan earlier. That had been the Air Canada plan at one point Something like, you know, a huge percentage of everyone over an 18 in Canada was a member of Aeroplan because Air Canada is so dominant in Canada for a long time, really the only airline until WestJet started. And now there's really just two big airlines in Canada. And they they did. They spun it off. And what they found was that it wasn't as valuable to them as an airline as it had been. And when the term of their agreement between Aeroplan and Air Canada ended, they just said, we're going to leave the program. And Aeroplan said, wait, you can't do that. And so Air Air Canada bought it back for pennies on the dollar. And I yeah. think the same thing would happen if Delta sold Sky Miles or American sold Advantage. These programs are part of the airline and they don't really exist without the airline. And they can show this immense incremental profitability because they don't have to pay for the airline, but they need the airline. Yeah, and Aeroplan is the biggest example, but not the only one. Other airlines around the world have spun off these programs or parts of these programs. But I think the game is kind of up because because of what you said. Everybody knows how that works out. And in the case of Aeroplan, I mean, Air Canada signed this long-term agreement. I mean, the investors weren't totally naive, those who, who paid a lot of money for Aeroplan in the beginning. They understood that Aeroplan needed Air Canada. And Air Canada signed, I think it was like a 15-year agreement promising to stay with Aeroplan, but 15 years passed <laughs> and, and then all of a sudden exactly what you said happened. Uh, you know, basically uh, Air Canada had all the leverage. And, and so, yeah, I think that's exactly why Delta, even if it wanted to probably could not spin off sky miles and any kind of multiple that would be similar to a company. In other words, if you believe that sky miles has the P and L that we're talking about, uh, it just wouldn't sell in the market for the kinds of money another company that was a truly independent company that wasn't a that wasn't so dependent on 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 a on a host basically. No, I'm not, you're right. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not calling Sky Miles a leech. It's amazing, yeah. <laughs> but 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 you know the, yeah no I I think you're right. It would it would sell now at a big discount because especially of the aeroplane experience. Everybody knows how that works. So let me say also that I don't think it's dumb that financiers would take Sky Miles or a frequent fire program as good collateral, but you have to think about why they would. They think Delta is going to survive, right? And there's 
there's that old joke that banks don't lend money to people who need it. They make, they lend money to people who have it. Right. So the people who are willing to lend Delta $9 billion with Sky Miles as collateral doesn't believe that Delta is going to file for bankruptcy or shut down and not be a carrier, you know, for two years from now. They um, believe that Delta is going to be, going to fly through this that their balance sheet is strong, that their customer base is strong. They're going to they're going to get through this and they're going to be valuable and that's just going to put more and more value into Sky Miles and make people want to have more Sky Miles and so this program is great collateral. And I think they're probably right in that assessment. But what it does is it says that the airlines who use this as collateral probably send a nice message that hey, the financial world thinks we're a survivor here. And those that can't or maybe don't, some people might think a little differently from that, right? Yeah, because let's face it, Advantage is, I mean, if you just looked at the program, it it would be similarly impressive to Sky Miles. And yet American isn't going to be able to get the kinds of terms that Delta can get by using Advantage as collateral. I think it's because exactly of of what you said, which brings us, Ben, to our first listener question. Speaking of loyalty and American and all the rest of it, Chris of Minneapolis writes, love the podcast. Thanks, Chris. You don't have to say that. You could start off these messages with like, hate the podcast. We would still read them. In fact, that'd be more fun, right? I would love to hear you guys chat about the AA Lifetime Pass. I know it doesn't exist any longer, but the whole story about Steve Rothstein getting it revoked and Mark Cuban also having one is interesting. I'd love to hear your expert opinions on the subject and if it could be a tool airlines might use again, given the current economic climate and need to raise funds. Interesting. Okay, so the lifetime pass, uh, I think a lot of people know what that is, but American way back, like 40 years ago, needed cash. It sold these lifetime first class unlimited tickets for a quarter million dollars. And then you could add a companion for another $150,000. And look, I'm sure it worked out very well for the airline with a few people, right? Somebody probably bought it and died a month later <laughs> and American got to, uh, you know, keep all that money. Um, but uh, there, there were people who took, who took advantage of it. Uh, and so just to explain who those names are, Steve Rothstein is somebody who American accused of, of, uh, of gaming the system, basically, Ben, you might remember more details even than I do. Mark Cuban is the the billionaire owner of the um, the Dallas Mavericks, uh, and so so where this ties into the last question, Ben, is not only because it's about American, not only because it's about loyalty, but in terms of just sort of the hierarchy of ways airlines could raise cash. I mean, it's not a bad question by Chris. We see Delta. Uh, using the frequent flyer program to borrow money on good terms. Why wouldn't airlines go out and now that they need the cash again, sell lifetime uh, tickets for some amount of money? It'd be, it'd be more than a quarter million dollars now for, for a lifetime frequent uh, first class ticket. But but wouldn't there be some amount of money that would make sense for the airline and for a consumer? You know, I hope it doesn't, Seth, and I'll tell you why. I think the reason that um, the AA Lifetime Pass didn't end up working long-term for American, even though undoubtedly, like you said, some of the sales worked for them. The Some people bought that pass and flew less than the amount of money than they paid American, you know, to for all the flights they took. But a lot of people did, used it more, and that is the issue. 
the lifetime pass suffers from what insurance people call adverse selection. And adverse selection, if you look it up, means uh, a sale where the buyer knows more than the seller. <laughs> In practical terms, what it means is that the people who buy it are exactly the people you don't want to buy it because they are the ones who would otherwise be buying lots of tickets on you or someone anyway. And no one 40 years ago, $250,000 would be, I don't know what, a million dollars today or more yeah. or something like that. Nobody's going to spend that kind of money just for the hope that maybe I'll fly sometime, right? They're thinking, I run this business. I'm spending half a, I'm spending half a million dollars a year on travel. So I'll buy this pass for a million dollars and fly for the next 10 years. Right. And, yeah. and so what the airline ends up getting is they get the upfront cash, but then it costs them an enormous amount over the lifetime of that person to redeem sort of the award of that pass. And that's taking inventory that they're not selling to other customers and more. And as importantly, money that they're not collecting from the customer who bought the pass, who probably wants the American pass because they live in a place where American flies a lot. So they would have flown American anyway, right? The, the air pass probably wouldn't have been that useful to you if you lived in Atlanta, right? Maybe you would have bought it on American and connected through Dallas and Miami everywhere you went or Chicago, right? <laughs> but more likely lots of people in Dallas bought it and lots of people in Chicago bought it, right? And because that's where American was big. So if they didn't have the past, they would have been buying tickets likely on American anyway. So that's why I say, I hope they don't because if airlines have to go down that road to generate cash, it, it tells you that they've really tapped out any of the markets in terms of using more creative capital like their frequent flyer program or slots and gates or, or physical assets like airplanes that maybe they own and they can sell and lease back. Right? There's just better ways that have more real collateral than essentially diluting your future revenue and mortgaging your future by selling free free travel when you're in the business of selling travel as a business. You know, I'm not often a beneficiary of adverse selection bias, but I'll tell you a story about one time I was a couple of years ago. I, I, I bought a sleeper sofa and they offer the extended warranty. And I never buy the extended warranty for anything because generally speaking, I know that for any kind of risk with sort of a, a where there's, there's sort of a predictable rate of things going wrong and what it costs and all that. Generally, the, the house always wins, right? So buying extended warranties on TVs, I'm not saying that there aren't people who, you know, who should because of their own circumstances and that there aren't people who benefit. But generally, if you go around spending two or $300 extra on everything you buy, yeah, one time the TV will break and you'll benefit from it. But over the course of your lifetime, you're probably going to spend more on that stuff than, uh, than you'll benefit from it. But we're buying the sleeper sofa. It was a microfiber sleeper sofa, and we have cats with claws. And, and I've learned in the past not to buy microfiber anything because the cats scratch it up. But we needed this very specific size, and this was just what we had to buy. And you know, I was buying it, thinking, okay, fine, we'll scratch it up eventually, but whatever. Uh, it's the right size, and the, the mattress will be comfortable, <laughs> which is the point, right? So go through the sale process, and they said, okay, do you want a five-year warranty $150 and we replace or repair it no matter what happens when something goes wrong. I said, okay, wait, 
no matter what? They said, yeah, no matter what. And I said, and I mean, I wasn't trying to rip them off. I said, okay, so like if my cats scratch up this sofa like they are going to, <laughs> I, I could call you four years and 11 months from now and get a free sofa or, you know, unless you want to repair it, if you have the same fabric and all that. And they said, yeah. I said, all right, give me the warranty. Wow. Yeah, that, that's a perfect example of adverse selection. Now, it's also an example of what unfortunately happens a lot in business, which is the person who sold you that didn't have to worry about whether it made sense for the company or not. He probably had an incentive and probably was paid a little bonus because he actually sold you the, the warrant. Yeah, because the margins on that stuff are- You could have said to him in terms of, you know, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not only going to use this, I'm going to call you tomorrow and make you give me a new sofa. <laughs> Right, because because the margins on that stuff are so big in general. Those warranties that they right, they give really big commissions. I mean, it's why the people pressure you to buy the insurance at the rental care uh, car counter, and why they pressure you to buy the extended warranty at Best Buy and all. It's because the margins on those products are so much higher than the margins on the car or, or the TV or any of it. But you're right. I know, and I not, bet, the, and, not, I bet he, and I bet he took of your hundred fifty dollars. I bet he got twenty bucks of that. Or something. I'm sure. I'm right? sure. <laughs> Well, thanks. Well, time next for passengers behaving badly. But first, we want to thank Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotel Connections is a Fortune 1000 company and procures more than 30 million rooms annually on behalf of their clients. Hotel Connections makes travel management easier and less expensive with their AI-powered booking applications, intelligent learning algorithms, customizable rules engines, analytics, and global negotiated rate programs. For travel, logistics, hotels, transport, and technology solutions, visit hotelconnections.com. That's hotelconnections.com. Time now for passengers behaving badly, and I mean very badly. But I'm going to just read you this headline for this is a story that NBC News's website, but it was it was all over the news. Single plane passenger infected 15 people with COVID-19, CDC says. So this was a 27-year-old woman who flew from London to Hanoi, Vietnam, back on March 1st. Now we'll come back to why that that's relevant here. But basically the upshot, and, and you can go and read all about it online, was that this woman got on a plane. She was sick. She knew she was sick. And then the evidence is that she directly infected 15 people with COVID-19. And Ben, you know how this virus spreads. You know, those people undoubtedly infected other people. And knowing the mortality rate, I mean, somebody in the world probably died because this woman who apparently knew she was sick when she got on the plane, got on the plane. And, and okay, this was March 1st. Now, why is that relevant? Because in terms of just sort of thinking about our risk of flying and all of that, it was a different world then, right? People were not wearing masks. I mean, that was barely after they stopped telling us, please don't wear masks, right? Because they were trying to save the mask for medical workers and all that. But certainly long before they were required, I mean, that was like in April when airlines started mandating masks. So long before that, uh, you know, not the same kinds of precautions, but that said, uh, this woman seems to have uh, seems to have spread the, the virus to a lot of other people. This is interesting for a lot of ways, for a lot of reasons, I should say. You know, first of all, there's been this ambiguity about 
whether people really get the virus on an airplane. I, I mean, look, there's there's no question that air travel has a role in the spread of the virus just because airlines are how people travel around the world and people traveled from China to Europe and from there to the US and they didn't mostly go on sailboats, right? We know how they got there. But, but in terms of whether people actually contracted the virus on planes, that has been a, a trickier question. And so here we have this woman apparently having spread it, uh, they d- determined through contract tracing and all that, uh, contact tracing, I should say, and all that to other people on the flight. Uh, look, I know there are people who are facing closing borders and, and you know, just all kinds of pressure to do basically the wrong thing, all kinds of bad incentives out there. But I don't know what to say. Hard this not is, to, this is, yeah. um, this is one of the saddest passengers behaving badly because, you know, sometimes you just want to make fun of the person for being such an idiot, basically, right? Right? In, in a passenger behaving badly. But this is a case, if you go back to March and you think about where the world was, this person knew they, knew they were sick. They may have even suspected or known that they had something known that the world knew is COVID, right? But even that, they might not have even known that it was that. Um and they certainly didn't know how deadly it could be or how deadly it could be to people with compromised immune systems or older people or things. So she got on this flight, probably thinking I shouldn't get on this flight. I'm sure no one was wearing a mask because nobody was wearing a mask on the early March. And airlines didn't start mandating that till almost two months later, right? And... Um, So she ended up infecting all these people and they know that now. And I have to think that she wasn't just behaving badly that I'm going to go and infect all these people. She thought I'm sick and I got to get to where I'm going and I'll probably have to pay a change fee if I change my flight anyway. Right. And all these kind of things. And it's a long flight. So you don't take long flights willy nilly. Right. She was going home or she was going on an important trip or coming back from an important trip. Yeah. Right. That's it wasn't a two hour flight. It was a long flight. And so all of that says that she made the decision to get on the plane sick. And I all I can do is hope that she really didn't realize the consequence of that decision was as severe as it ended up being. Otherwise, she, you'd have to just think she's this terrible human being. And, and given the date, I don't want to believe that about her. Um, yeah, I, I I have to imagine she didn't have like a positive COVID test, right? First of all, on March first, it was it was hard to get a COVID test in a lot of places, so it, she probably felt like she had plausible deniability, so to speak, right? Probably talked herself into, well, yeah, I got this cough, and I got these other, you know, things that we would have known by then were perhaps symptoms of COVID, but symptoms that we've also all had when we haven't had COVID, and, and so she probably talked herself into believing that it was okay. You know, I'm, I have to say, I was surprised that change fees largely at least just sort of went away in the US. I know there are exceptions, airlines that still have them and, and basic economy fares on airlines that, you know, mostly don't have them, but the basic economy fares has and all that. But anyway, it all happened rather quickly. And I have to say just at this point, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm glad it did because it, it just this incentive to fly sick was never a good thing, but now especially it, it, we see here with this example, it, it could be deadly. Well, you know, and Seth, the Washington Post reported just uh, yesterday that the CDC is now saying, 
11,000 people may have been exposed to people who had they now know had coronavirus on airplanes. And I was annoyed at the Washington Post headline because it says it said up to 11,000 people may have been exposed to COVID on airplanes, CDC says. When you read the article, the CDC you know, was much more tempered in that. They said, we know people flew with COVID. We don't know, we don't have a single case confirmed that anyone contracted the virus from these people or that there was any positive transmission on board. But just based on proximity, we could say these 11,000 people were sort of at risk. And then they went on to even sort of remind people of the relative safety of being on an airplane versus in other places and things like that. So the headline was a little dramatic, I thought. And if all you read was the headline and didn't read the article, all you're going to say is, wow, that's just another reason not to fly again, which is really unfortunate for the travel industry. But if you actually read the story and you read what the CDC said, you know, they said that these people may have incrementally been exposed. But that means those 1,600 people who flew, they didn't get COVID as they walked on the airplane, right? They, and they didn't get cured as they walked off. What they did was they had COVID and they chose to fly. So they were not only putting the people on the planes at risk, but in other things, in the airports and getting around and the things they were doing, clearly not quarantining, was as big a risk as, if not more than probably being on the airplane. Right. Exposure. Look, most people who are exposed to COVID don't get COVID because what is technically an exposure, like in the case of a hospital worker, if you are wearing a mask, but it's not an N95 mask, but it's a rather good mask, and you are around somebody who later turns out to have COVID, that is considered an exposure, even though almost nobody gets it. As long, you know, if you have just sort of the basic medical mask, I mean, that's that's rather good, uh, but it's considered an exposure. And I, so I think that's the, like you say, with the headline, um, it, it was correct in that those were you know, and, and who knows, there might be more, right? That was confirmed exposure. I mean, there might be more people who just, you know, the contact tracing didn't happen. But in terms of, uh, but 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 I think that's a, a nuance that that people, that most people probably don't understand. So so yeah. I'll, I'll nominate those 1,600 people as a class action passengers behaving badly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, Ben, it turns out there's a flip side to having extra recline when you buy upgraded seats. Here's a hint. It has to do with what the person in front of you also has. More Airlines Confidential is next. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports nationwide, moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at clearme.com slash airlines. That's www.clearme.com slash airlines. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Ben, you were mentioning me during the break, mentioning to me, 
a, a clarification in case anybody didn't pick up the intro when you said Seth Kaplan, Chainsmokers, Philadelphia, all these different <laughs> things, and you wanted to clarify in case people didn't guess. Well, you know, if you Google someone's name, you get whatever you get, and then at the bottom, it, all, it usually says searches related to that term. So if you search Seth Kaplan on Google, at the bottom you get Seth Kaplan Aviation, what you'd expect, but Seth Kaplan MD, Seth Kaplan Chainsmokers, just Seth Kaplan Gunster, Seth Kaplan Baseball, Seth Kaplan Philadelphia. It's just really funny. And so I went and clicked on each of these links. And the funniest one was the Seth Kaplan Philadelphia, because there were two links that were really interesting. It was um, how Seth Kaplan 29 was named to the Somerton uh, City Council as this great civic leader. And then three years later, Seth Kaplan 32 pleaded guilty to theft and receiving stolen property in his role. <laughs> as, <laughs> I just thought that was really funny. <laughs> yeah. So I guess uh, not being the most famous Seth Kaplan is maybe okay. Yeah, there are I'm a bunch sure. of us out there. There's this one Seth Kaplan in Denver, this poor guy who has a personal email address that's similar to that of some of the rest of ours. And so, and sometimes like mail gets misrouted. Like, like you know, like I can give my email addresses out to somebody and they're, they're off by a, by a letter or whatever. And this guy is very conscientious about trying to route the mail to the email to all the other Seth Kaplan's. Like if he reads <laughs> something in it, that that's uh, and so, so, so a few of us know each other. There's actually one Seth Kaplan uh, in, in Miami, who I know personally, but then yeah, there's, there's kind of this. Uh, well, and there's one who's a professor at George Mason university where I teach my class yeah. and, and I've gotten emails on my George Mason email account from Seth Kaplan. And I mean, and I, and, Usually I think, why is Seth writing to me on this email account? And then I realize it's the professor at George Mason University, Seth Kaplan. Yeah. Good thing you don't like reply back to him cursing him out, <laughs> meaning to curse me out instead. Yeah, well, back to the mailbag now. Joe in Tampa, who's one of our chronic emailers, uh, sent an email with subject line, DCA departure procedure. Uh, DCA, of course, is Reagan National Airport. Uh, Joe asks... What happens if a pilot makes an error and flies over the White House? Now, first of all, I hope this doesn't happen on a flight I'm on because I'm not sure if I want to know the answer. But but I have to but I have to imagine that you don't just get shot down right away. Do you have any idea, Ben? How that? How, I mean, I scramble fighters. I know generally speaking, you know, there, there'd be a procedure. Yeah, long before the plane got over the White House, they would know that the plane's heading in that direction. And a lot of things would happen to make sure the pilot knew he wasn't where he was supposed to be. Now, let's say, for example, that the pilot wanted to fly over the White House. Well, then the plane probably would be shut down. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> the, that, that's the reality of it. But again, long before that happened, all kinds of things would be happening alarms would be going off everywhere. They'd be talking to the cockpit. They'd be saying, you got to turn. What are you doing? You're in restricted airspace, all yeah. kinds of things. You know, I have a private pilot license and I and I flew fairly regularly up until 1999. And what happened that year is I moved to the Washington area and it was just very hard to fly here as a private pilot because there's yeah. so much restricted, restricted airspace. airspace. Yeah, yeah, you got to go out to Leesburg or... Uh, or Manassas or somewhere like that. And that takes a long time to drive out. And even when you take off there, you can't go, you can't go fly over all the, 
the mall, right? That's what you want to see, <laughs> but you can't do that, right? And so at that point, I just said enough. I'm not going to fly anymore uh, myself. And so the reality is, is that you just you don't mess around with that kind of stuff. And I don't think a commercial aircraft has any risk of that happening to it. Yeah, I think the only restricted airspace that is as protected as that over to White House in America is like Disney World, right? <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm not mistaken, that airspace is restricted too. But yeah, there's, uh, for people, I think most of our listeners know, but for people who don't know, yeah, I mean, it is, you you cannot, and that's one, that's one thing that's different about Washington is, yeah, there are places where there will just never be an airplane directly overhead because they're, there can't be. It's, yeah, I mean, the, the one, the one thing that, the one thing that Joe, who, you said chronic emails, but he's a great emailer, right? Oh, chronic oh, has this negative connotation to it. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. He's a he's a, he's a uh, an enthusiastic emailer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, he asks, "What happens if the pilot makes an error and flies over the White House?" The answer is he'd have to make about twenty five errors before yeah. he flew over the White House, and that's the real issue there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, do you have a question for us? You can call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question. We'll play it on the air. You can email us, questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. You'll see a form on there. Finder Wine is next, but first we want to thank Seabury Capital. Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime and financial services, and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's seaburycapital, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y, capital.com. Well, beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for fine or wine. We listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. Yes, I do, Seth. Richard of Houston is complaining about Delta. Richard writes, so I bought Comfort Plus, which most of our listeners probably know that's a little more comfortable coach class, so yep. I would be able to work on my laptop. Think again. Person in front of me reclines her seat, almost snaps off the top of my laptop, and no ability to work on it for the remainder of the trip. Ridiculous. Okay, as you mentioned, Comfort Plus, Ben, is it, it's an extra legroom seat. And in Delta's case, this is this varies by airline. Not only is there more pitch, but there's also more recline. I think about twice as much. Maybe a regular seat reclines something like two inches, and Comfort Plus seats recline something like four inches. And I mean, the idea is that because you have more space in between the seats, you get more recline and it shouldn't bother you as much as the person in front of you. Well, I guess that's the point here, right? Well, <laughs> so, so, so that, that it kind of cuts both ways, doesn't it? Having extra well, recline. It does. You know, at Spirit, when we stopped having our seats reclined and we fixed the seats at a recline sort of pace, but that people didn't care about that. They didn't have the recline. It was amazing is the number of complaints we got about not reclining had an offset, not an equal amount of offset of people who said, you know, it's really nice that nobody can recline onto me. Yeah. And that is that is the thing about recline. It's nice to have it, but you don't want it done to you. And especially yeah. if you pay the extra for Comfort Plus, I actually, I actually think that 
that's a, a fine for him. If he pays extra for a seat with more legroom, the expectation is absolutely you'll be able to work. And if the recline is so much that he really could not work on that, I think that's a problem that Delta has too much recline on on, on Comfort Plus or the pitch isn't as great as they say it is or that they apply it is. One of those things, because you buy that extra product, the whole idea is so that people have a little more room and can have a space to work. And the expectation that you could work on your laptop in that seat seems pretty logical to me. Maybe Delta should take a page from Spirit's playbook and, and pre-recline the Comfort Plus seats at like, at like all four inches back, right? And, uh, you know, you might choke on your free Dewar's White Label uh, scotch, but, but hey, at least you've got your recline and the person in front of you, well, yeah, they're reclined into you too. On final approach now, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website from the Airlines Confidential Studios. I'm Seth Kaplan. Which Seth Kaplan? Oh, so <laughs> and I'm Ben Baldessi. Not, not the criminal. <laughs> Talk to you soon. The alleged criminal, just in case. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> this podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.